morning, friends. If you're new around here, I'm Rob Jacobson. I'm the lead pastor, and I am pretty hopeful that winter is over, I think. Now, I know some of you are hopeful, if you're a Twins fan, that they're going to have a winning season, maybe, and some of you are hopeful for strong memories and good test-taking skills because you have exams that you would like to pass, and so I'm hopeful for you on that, and that's kind of the question of the morning is, what are you hopeful for? See, two Fridays ago, I spoke with uh, a woman whose husband's been in and out of the hospital for five years, and he's, he's fairly young for someone that's been in the hospital that long. He's got a daughter who's several years younger than me, and, um, and that Friday, this mom and daughter heard from the medical team that, that he was not doing well, and they were going to take him off the respirator. And they had to see if he would live or if he would pass. And they said, we're going to give you a couple hours, and then we're going to unplug it and see. And we can hope. Now, if you were in that situation, would that be a good enough answer for you? Where would your hope be in the midst of that? It's a tough situation, but we can do more than hope. It's been said that that humans can live for 40 days without food. They can live for four days without water. They can live for four minutes without air. But I don't know many people who can live for four seconds without hope. And as we conclude this series that we've been going through called Elements, there is this often mislabeled element of hope that I want to talk about today. How we can have it and not lose it. Now Jesus said that he has come to give us life, new life, abundant life, overflowing life. With God, the Bible says anything is possible. And yet, there are many times where we feel like we get distracted or discouraged or just so down that we doubt life is ever going to get better. And yet, so many people believe there are elements called hope. There are elements of situations that can transform us if we put ourselves into those places. And, and we're just hoping that that will happen. Maybe you came to church today hoping for a different situation. Well, we can, we can do more than that. See, see, I think part of the problem is that when we say hope, we often refer to it as a verb, as this idea that we think positive. You know, so, so we just realize that, you know, if, if we were paratroopers and we were going to jump out of a plane, because, you know, why wouldn't optimistic people do that? So we strap on the parachute and the, the instructor says, you know, he's just a super optimistic person. So he says, don't worry. You know, you, you count to three, then you pull the chute. And if that one doesn't open, don't worry, there's an emergency chute. So you pull that one. And if that one doesn't open, don't worry, there's going to be a truck to pick you up at the end, no matter what. That's the optimistic person. And, and maybe that's just not you. You're not very optimistic or positive or happy, and so you're like, crud, there's no hope for me. And I would say, liar! Well, maybe you are op- un, not very optimistic. Maybe you are a little bit on the downer side, but you're lying about what 
hope is. See, hope, as referred to in the Bible, is this confident expectation that what has been promised will happen. And if we hope in God, then it's our confident expectation that what God has promised will happen. And God reveals today through this leader, Zerubbabel, kind of a cool name, four ingredients for us to have hope. Now, if you've ever been in a leadership position anywhere, then you probably know that leadership comes with unique challenges. Because as leaders, you see things that others don't see. As leaders, you hear things that others don't hear. As a leader, you're called to often take more of the blame than you should, and you're called to pass more of the praise than you probably should. And there are moments where you see transformation happen in someone. In, in church leadership, there's moments of soul transformation where someone goes literally from death to life. It's, it's unbelievably humbling and, and amazing. But as a leader in any place, you often hear more of the complaints and you see and hear all the problems. And the biggest primal challenge in any kind of a leadership position. And we're all called to different forms of leadership. The primary challenge is how to have hope and not just hope. Especially when circumstances would make us think there is no hope. And so we want to turn to this little book called Haggai. It's page 770 if you picked up a Bible like this from us, um, which are in the back. Or you can pop it open on your electronic device. But as you're opening to it, I'd like to give you a couple reasons why this guy named Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel might need hope. Number one, um, he comes from a family of conflicted past. His grandfather and his great-grandfather were the last two kings of God's people that actually were the ones that helped send them into exile, like prison, very much as concentration camps for God's people. So even when they hear his name, if they know that he is part of this line, this kingly line of people, then they're probably not too excited about talking to him. One of the prophets actually said that God would never again let his family rule the nation because of how wicked his grandfather was. Now, now his circumstances stink. That's another reason why he might need hope. He has very few resources. The people have very little money. They're, they have bad you know, farmland and crops. And this pathetic little army in a, in a world where this country that overtook them, Babylon, has now been overtaken by the Persians and, or the Medes, then the Persians, and soon Greece will follow them. And so there's, they've just been ruled for their entire lives by someone else. I think another reason why Uh, Zerubbabel might need some hope is the task is huge. It's hard, and he probably feels like it's too much. I don't know if you've ever been asked to do something that's way bigger than you. But he's been doing it for three months. The progress is slow, and and the people quit 16 years ago. And now now these two people have come to encourage him, and, and they've started again, but they're not seeing the results as fast as they'd like to. And finally we get from a couple other places other than Haggai, 
that Zerubbabel was tempted to put his hope in other things. So as we begin to read this story, I just want you to think about your life. The leadership positions or the places of influence that you might hold, whether it's in a family or work or with your friends, do you ever have times where you lose hope? Times of discouragement. Like you're the only one who can be the carrier of hope for your family or for your friends or for your work. And so everybody looks at you, but you wonder, when can the encourager be encouraged? Or maybe you doubt that you have this past, and if people knew your past, then they wouldn't want to use you, and there's no way God could use you. There's hope. If you get freaked out by circumstances that surround you, and you wonder and scurry around trying to, trying to control things that you can't control, there's hope. And if you've chased other stuff to bring you hope, maybe you've put your hope in other people, or your hope in a house, or a job, or a spouse, or family, or friends, there's hope for you. There's a better way, and we find it in this book called Haggai, chapter 2, the last three verses, starting in verse 20. It says that the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month, and it said this, tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the powers of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you says the Lord Almighty. As we look at this and ponder what hope means and where to have it, I think we see these four ingredients. The first one is this question of who's in control. Are we willing to accept who's in control? Hope is not something we do, like I'm hopeful for the twins to win, it's something we can have. And so to have it, we have to do four acceptances, if you will. The first is to accept that God is in control. Four times he says, I will shatter the powers. I will overturn rulers. I will shake the heavens. I will overthrow these military strategies. These statements not only point out who is in control, but they also point to ultimately where we can place our hope. These are all statements that are called messianic statements. Whenever the scriptures use them, they are statements that point to the fact that we cannot save ourselves, that we are not ultimately in control of our lives, but that we need someone to save us, that we need someone to lead us. And that is ultimately Jesus. But if you've ever doubted God's power or God's goodness in the midst of your circumstances, then these are very important for you. Zechariah, the other prophet that comes alongside Zerubbabel, he says this to this ruler about this time. He says, Zechariah, say to Zerubbabel, 
the leader of the people. It's not by might nor by power, but by God's spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, like not by your efforts or not by my efforts, not by what you or I can control, but by God's spirit. We can have hope when God is in control beyond our circumstances because we can't ultimately control everything. I mean, we think we can control stuff, so we work really hard at exercising and eating right. But guess what? We don't know the number of our days. We can go to the doctor. We can do things to live healthy and wise. And, and yet we can still contract a disease or get an illness that we have no control over. So in those moments, if we put our hope in us or in what we can control, it is so limited. But if we can put our hope in this God that says he can shake the heavens and overturn thrones and shatter kingdoms and overthrow militaries, this isn't a violent God. This is the language of the Spirit of God coming to earth. When the Spirit of God comes to earth, all through the scriptures, whether it's at Sinai, this mountain where God is present in a cloud and God's people are surrounding it. It says that the earth shook, the heavens shook. When God came to the first temple, when Solomon, their leader then, the king then prayed, and God came in, it said that the heavens shook and the earth shook. When this temple that we're looking at right now, that Zerubbabel is having to rebuild with the people, when God's spirit came to that place, it said that the heavens shook. When Jesus dies, it says there's great earthquakes, the heavens shook. And finally, when Jesus was resurrected, and 50 days after his resurrection, God's spirit comes on all the people, not needing a temple anymore. It says that the heavens shook, and that spirit went into those people. In Acts, it says that the sound, that the spirit came like a rushing wind, this sonic boom, and filled the people. God's earth-shattering, life-changing, ultimate power comes into each one of us. In those moments when life seems out of control, we don't need to try and control. We can place our hope in the one who is in control control. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, that's, you know, nice church language for church people. But if you really think about it, the opposite or trying to control it is kind of like saying, wait, I have the power to choose my destiny and I have the ability to never do it in a way that harms anyone else. And and really, what God has convicted me of, at least, is that's a very, very proud way to live. It's quite arrogant to think that we can go through life not making mistakes. Because the only one who was perfect was Jesus Christ. And when we accept who's in control, we are accepting that God might know better than us. And he actually has the power to do something about it, which can give us hope this confident expectation that God will do what he promises. That's what he does. The second thing that we see here in this is that we should accept our weaknesses. After we accept that God is in control, 
God says to Zerubbabel, he says, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel. I will take you as my servant. Like, God knows that Zerubbabel is the one he wants to not only start the temple, but have the honor of finishing the temple. There is a special plan and purpose for Zerubbabel that goes actually way beyond him, even though he's incredibly important to the mission. There are leaders in our lives that are incredibly important to our mission. Bosses, teachers, CEOs, politicians, not always the people we want to trust, but, but God has them in places where they can bring us to this plan and this place where God might want us to go. When we look at our lives, and we accept that the situation is bigger than us. And we take this attitude of a servant. Because that's ultimately what it means to accept our weaknesses. Because I will follow you, God. You know better than I. I will serve you, but it ultimately goes beyond me. And it goes beyond my weaknesses. Now we can act with humility. Now we can, we can work in a way that doesn't bring harm to others. And we can go into our situations seeing that God will use us, and yet it's not about us. It keeps us humble. It keeps us looking towards God. And when we accept our weaknesses and let those come out, we actually point people to God in a greater way than if we weren't showing those weaknesses. It's very similar to what I think the call that Jesus has for us in Luke 9. It's the, it's the verse that we've been paralleling along with this series that says that, that if any of you want to be my follower, Jesus says, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If any of you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. When Jesus says, or when, when Paul says about Jesus, that we should have the same attitude as Jesus. Philippians 2.5. It says that though Jesus was in God's very nature, in very nature God, he gave up his divine rights and took on the form of a servant. He became human with all of his weaknesses and all of the limits that you and I would have so that people could see, God, when we accept our weaknesses and have this servant attitude, in the very same way, we give up our life for the sake of Jesus, and in that, we find it. Now, sometimes we have to deconstruct in order to have hope restored, in order to have Christ restored in order like Zerubbabel to not only go from this person that would start this restoration project, but to be the leader that would lay the last stone on the capstone of the temple. An incredibly honorable but humble situation. Well, we have some friends, Sean and Danielle, who have been in their own deconstruction process to see God restored in them. And um, it's just been so profound over these last months that I really wanted them to come and share for a few minutes on what they've learned from God in this 
restoration and deconstruction process. So would you come up? Oh, yeah. There we go. Hi. Um, uh, something I enjoy very much is looking at home magazines. One of my favorite parts are those are the before and after pictures where they take this really old kind of cruddy 1970s green orange room and turn it into this bright, colorful, updated living room. And as a reader, I only see those two moments in time, the before and the after. But I got to thinking about those homeowners. They started at the before with no idea of exactly how long it would take or what it would look like in the end, but they kept moving. They still started, and they started with just one thing, a vision, a vision of what could be. And that after didn't come right away. It came weeks and months laters, later. It had to be transformed. Those homeowners had to live in that transformation. I can only imagine that process. The paint in the hair, the bashed thumbs, the late nights, dust everywhere. For a time, they had to live in that mess. I think of our life right now of living in that mess. Before any reconstruction can happen, you almost always have to start with destruction. Our before moment was when my husband came home from work one day and he said they let me go. That moment was when the sledgehammer hit the wall of what I thought was my life. I felt those words like a shockwave. My hands, my feet, my legs, everything just got really hot. And I know I was probably still breathing, but I couldn't feel it. That moment was four months ago. And here we are, still no job. We lost our only source of income. I had to go back to work after being at home for 12 and a half years as a stay-at-home mom. And I, go, I work at a school that ends in three weeks. Our insurance has run out. He has been turned down for over 180 jobs because he's either overqualified or underqualified. And then his car engine started on fire going down 494, so now we only have one car. And to top all that off, on Wednesday, I'm going to be 40. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure I have all the major components and ingredients for a midlife crisis. Except that I'm happier than I've ever been. Because like the homeowner who has the vision to carry them through in, this, in the mess, I have God who gives me hope to carry me through mine. The kind of hope that is more than a cute saying you'll find on Facebook or Pinterest. The hope that is more than the circumstances of the paint in the hair and the bashed thumbs. More than a dead car and no job. Romans 8.28 says, In all things God works for the good of those who love him. That means he takes all the things, the right decisions or the wrong, the good circumstances or not, all of them, and makes them good. So knowing that and hearing people say, Everything happens for a reason. God has a plan. I decided to look at our mess through the lens of the good that God intended it to be. And I found gold. So I made a list. I found that in these four months, we have gotten the time we really needed to work on our marriage. He used to work 70 hours a week. It was just me and these three. And now it's us. We're a team. And we've been able to date like every week, not once every six to eight months. <laughs> and we've become the family that I've dreamed of. And we've become the team that our kids needed to be the parents that they need. 
he's learned the busyness of being a stay-at-home mom or parent, which really means that you don't stay home much. You run around all the time. And I've learned the different exhaustion of being a working parent. We've seen our friendship grow and strengthen, and because it's been so long, people are kind of running out of things to say to us. <laughs> so we've had to lean even more on God and each other. We have learned the fine art on living in as little as possible. And with three kids who love documentaries, I don't know how it took us this long to figure out libraries, free rental program. <laughs> we have had to learn to be positive and full of hope. Not to say there haven't been tough days, but we just had to hang on tighter then. It's pretty great that we can laugh together, but it's really nice that we can cry too. We know what truly matters in life. It's people and relationships. It's not having two cars in the driveway, but instead having friends who will come and get you when you need a ride. We've also learned that love is what you need to get through anything. And everybody's going through something, so love everybody. I can trust that we will be okay, and all will turn out. Um, in my darkest moment after sharing with a friend, she had no idea what to say to me. So she just kept saying over and over, you'll be okay, you'll be okay. And that gets me, that has gotten me a lot through these last four months. Not that I know what okay will mean exactly, but I know that it will be okay. That's our version of trusting God with our lives. We trust that we'll be okay. But we are letting him define that. Not us with perfect job or house or cars, but with a family that has grown closer in ways that we've only dreamed of and I've always prayed for. Way down the road, we've also discovered that when retirement comes, we're going to have a lot of fun. We also found that it is better not to wait for things to go as planned. We know now that the fun, the joy, and the greatest moments are in the mess. It's in getting paint in the hair. It's in crying on each other's shoulders and making do with what we have. It is totally setting us up to appreciate the after as just another blessing along the way in this thing called life. Thank you, Danielle and Sean. This is why we are restoration. This is why we do what we do. This is why we started a church, because there are people that have paint in their hair, and they're getting foreclosed on in their house, and they're putting their hope and their stuff, or their friends, or their jobs, and God sometimes answers our prayers in ways that really shake us up. This is the God that says they will shake the heavens and the earth. This is the God who says that I will do what I've promised to do. It just may not look like the perfect life that you or I picture. God doesn't want us to have a perfect life. He wants us to have relationship with the perfect Savior. Ultimately, the person of Jesus Christ coming into your life when you say yes to him, when you say, you know what, God is in control. I've got to accept my weaknesses. That's the only way that anything is going to happen of value in my life. The only way I'm really going to have hope for myself. And it'd be great to just stop there, but yet, then it would just be you and me. Except God doesn't want this hope to end with you and me. And when we look at these last two ingredients, we see that this hope is supposed to go to other people. The first one is this idea that God says, um, the Lord, I, I take you, my servant Zerubbabel, and I will make you like a signet ring. It's this idea that 
that God not only wants us to accept who's in control and accept our weaknesses, but God wants us to accept his authority. So imagine for a minute that you have access to Bill Gates' social security number, birth date, and bank account. I mean, we could have a lot of, well, should we just say partay? Or, or we could just do good for others, philanthropy. You know, we could get there. Maybe we might try and access those funds like we're an owner, but without Bill Gates' signature, I don't think we'd get very far. See, a signet ring is this idea of ownership, authority, and and identification. And so when God says that Zerubbabel is going to be like his signet ring, it's God placing his authority on him. Maybe you've heard this cliche phrase, when God calls you, he'll also equip you. This is this idea that God, when he gives you this task to do, that he wants to give you the authority to do it, which means we can trust him confidently. How can the encourager keep encouraging others? It's by having the confidence that God is working in that person, man, woman, young, old, wherever that leadership is, position is. God doesn't want that hope for you. He wants that hope for you in such a way that you can share it with someone else. And when we use this authority to lead, we go beyond the complaints, we go beyond the criticism, and we lead. We lead with that hope. It says in Isaiah 40, 31, that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. When we hope in God, we can be renewed. When we see the risk and the challenge and still go for it. One of my friends really convicted me uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, He was telling me something about his own life, and then God whacked me over the head with it. He was praying. He's a new church planter up in St. Paul, and he was praying to find a space to be in. And he was like, oh, God, you know, would you please give us something sometime? And his friend said, well, that's kind of a weenie prayer. And he looked at him, and he's like, why not pray a big prayer like, God, give us the space we need today, better than we could imagine. He's like, he said to my friend Tudor, he said, It's like you're having a crisis of faith about your prayer rather than having a crisis of faith when God doesn't come through. God, oh, I pray some small prayers. You ever pray small prayers because you're afraid God won't come through? Well, if he says, accept my authority, you're like my signet ring, then we can pray a big prayer. We'll have our crisis of faith after God doesn't come through if, God doesn't come through, because sometimes he doesn't come through in the way we want. We've got to be honest about that. But let's not have our crisis of faith before we pray. So pray the big prayer. You know, when Zechariah, the other prophet that comes alongside Zerubbabel, says, not by my strength or by my might, but by God's spirit, he also says, don't despise small things, Zerubbabel. You will put this last capstone on. And maybe in your life, you're leading in such a small way. Maybe you have to change diapers, and so the one person you're leading is a small child. You know what? Don't despise small things, God says. 
Maybe you are leading in a situation with your family where, where life, it just seems out of control, and you're wondering if you're doing anything good. God says, don't despise small things. Maybe at work, you're leading in some small way. Maybe it's just one coworker you're trying to encourage. Don't despise small things. God could do something with that that's beyond your wildest dreams. Where do you need to take the risk? Where do you need to accept the authority? And if you're worried about what will happen, you can do the last thing, and that's accept God's assurance. He says, finally, I have chosen you, Zerubbabel. I have chosen you. When God chooses us, that changes everything. When God chose these people after they quit on him, I might imagine, this is what gives me the most hope in this story. These people quit on God and God doesn't quit on them. When, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene and the religious people have pretty much rejected him and some people are hoping that he will be the one, God still comes on the scene, God still comes to each situation, and God still reaches out. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's hope. Peter tells it the most plainly. He says that in 1 Peter 1, 3, Praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is so good that he has given us new life and a hope that lives on because God raised Christ from the dead. If the resurrection isn't true, then we have no hope but it's probably the only thing that no one can refute, even if they try. It goes beyond the Bible, even though the Bible's really important. I mean, people who don't believe in Jesus still document the events. And, and because God raised Jesus from the dead, that changes everything. We now have a hope that goes way beyond us. So maybe the best way to encapsulate this is with a story a teammate shared with me as we close. The story is that there's this cup bearer. He's a servant of a guy in India. And as the servant, he has to carry these two large pots. So he puts them on the end of a big pole and carries them back from the stream. In the morning and in the evening, he does this. And one of the pots is cracked in a couple places. And so by the time he gets back to the house, it's only half full. And for two years, this goes on every day with the, the servant only giving one and a half jars full of water. In fact, the cracked pot starts to wonder, because it's a story, so the cracked pot thinks, he starts to wonder, well, gee, if I wasn't cracked, then maybe God would, you know, maybe there would be two full jars, and then if there was two full jars, maybe he wouldn't have to go back in the afternoon. You know, he's not getting much value for his work. And so after two years of this, he finally says to the cupbearer, or to the servant, you know what? I just don't even want you to use me anymore. I'm ashamed because of my cracks, and I want to quit. Find another pot. And the cupbearer says, well, why? And he says, because I can only give half of what I was designed to do. And Mr. Perfect Pot on the other side over here, he's just so proud of the fact that he delivers the full amount. He's just doing exactly what God made him to do. He's the perfect leader. I'm the crackpot. I'm the one who should be rejected. And the master or the servant looks at this pot with such compassion and says, tomorrow when we go down to the stream, I want you to look at the path as we come back. 
And so the crackpot says, okay. And they go down to the stream and they fill up. And as he's walking along, he does notice the sun shining down, not only on this kind of arid place where there's a lot of sparse grass and rocks and sand, but on one side of the path, there are flowers that have sprung up all along the way from the stream all the way to the master's house. But he still gets there and he says, look, I'm half full. This is why you should get another pot. This is why I should be done. And he has no hope. And the the servant says, didn't you see the flowers? Well, yeah, I saw the flowers. He goes, no, no, those flowers are there because I knew that you had the cracks and I took advantage of the cracks. I'm the one who planted those flower seeds along the path. I'm the one who watches you water them as you get sad about all the stuff that's spilling. I know that those flowers are getting life and I get to grab some of them each and every day and put them on my master's table and their beauty just radiates from that table. Don't despise yourself. Now, I know, personally, that's inspired by a true story. I know some crack pots. Scriptures actually say in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we are like jars of clay, and God shines through these broken bodies, these broken spirits. Do you see your cracks? Do you want to quit? If you do, you're not alone. Zerubbabel wanted to quit. There have been plenty of times that I've been discouraged. There are plenty of times when I've just seen my cracks and the scriptures say, God shines through those cracks. So accept your cracked potness and remember that God is in control. And when you accept those weaknesses, you let God shine. And when you accept his authority, you gain his confidence to go before and you gain his assurance to always be with him and that he is always with you and you share that hope with others. So today, I'd like you to take that worship folder thing and I'd like you to write this down. It's from Psalm 25. It's a prayer. The worship band's going to come up and we're going to be done. And we're going to go on with our week and we can go in hope because our hope is in one that comes to us time after time. And this hope is this. Psalm 25, guide me in your truth and teach me God my Savior. Help me to put all my hope in you all day long. If you're a slow writer, just write the last part. Help me to put all my hope in you, not in other stuff, not in a circumstance, but in you all day long. Pray that prayer every day this week. This is the hope element. This is the thing that can transform your life. As you pray that this week, ask God for two people in your life who also need to hear about hope. We're all crackpots, as Danielle said. We're all hurt. It goes beyond us. Pray that this week.